Colin Palatial, UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dave Mitchell. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk show tonight on UltimateSportsTalk.com, our weekly get-together to sit back and talk about the world of sports. And boy, everything is jam-packed here tonight. We've got a ton to discuss here this evening. And before we get into that, of course, you can join us on tonight's show via the Internet just simply by emailing us at dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com, or you can send us a tweet at OHBB co-host. And don't forget, you can also, every week, get a rebroadcast of the show available on YouTube. Well, like I said, there's a lot going on in the world of sports tonight. We're going to start out in the world of baseball because... Of course, one of the classiest guys in Major League Baseball is out again, and that being Derek Jeter of the New York Yankees. He is not going to play again this season. The Yankees decided to place him on the disabled list to end the season that has seen him play just 17 games this year and bat just 190. Jeter obviously is disappointed, and he won't be able to help his team in the wild card chase the rest of the season. It's very disappointing. I mean, it's um, you know, not to be able to play, especially this time of the year. This is when you want to play. This is when I want to play the most. And, um, you know, unfortunately, that's not the case. So it's it's the entire year, like I told you guys. I don't even know when I told you. The entire year has been pretty much a nightmare for me physically. So uh, I guess it's fitting that it ends like this, I guess, huh? You know, I've talked a lot with, with – both our doctor, Dr. Anderson, you know, I think it's just, we think that it's just a matter of we just haven't had any strength. You know, I haven't been able to work out my legs or lift my legs since October of last year. You know, the first time it broke, you know, you can't do anything weight-bearing, you can't work out. Then I was cleared in spring training, and then, you know, it was only a couple of weeks before I had the second incident. And I really think it's just from lack of strength. And, um, yeah, I've never been able to work out those legs because then when I came back I had two other leg issues because of there's weakness there and um, I think just having a normal off season, getting back to being able to work out, no one foresees any other issues. Jeter, who's 39 years old now, has never fully recovered from the broken ankle he suffered in last year's playoffs, but the Yankees captain and shortstop insists you can stop speculating about the end of his career right now look man people have had a lot of injuries throughout the course of their careers you know i've been pretty fortunate to play what 21 professional years i think it is and uh really only have one significant injury that was a dislocated shoulder so I, i've been fortunate to not have these injuries but you know there's been a lot of players that have had injuries over the course of the years and you know they don't think about what they're going to do next i mean you just move on from it so um yeah, let me tell you, it's, it's bad that I've had this year. It, it's been a nightmare, like I said, but, um, you know, you don't just start thinking about the end just because you have to deal with an injury that most players throughout the course of their careers have to deal with something. You know, it's amazing how the New York Yankees have one of the most classiest acts in the game today in Derek Jeter and one of the most classless acts in A-Rod. But all that remains right now for Derek Jeter to contemplate on among the offseason will be the current contract. He's an $8 million player option for next season, and he has to decide whether or not to exercise it. Chances are he probably will. 
manager Joe Girardi of the Yankees, says that even though the decision to put Jeter on the shelf for the rest of the year is an unexpected, he knows Jeter will do everything that he can to come back next year. It's not what we wanted. We were hoping we could get him back and we could get him on the field, but um, I think all the parties decided it was best to shut him down for the year. Well, it seemed like, you know, when he came back, he was fine, and then he would play a couple days and something something would happen. Um, the first time, I think it was his quad. The next time, it was his calf. And then his ankle started bothering him. So it seemed to be the repeated days seemed to get to him a little bit. Um, and that was frustrating for him, and it was frustrating for all of us because we wanted him out there. Uh, and I think that's why we decided to shut him down. There are no guarantees because I can't play the man upstairs. But I know he's going to do everything in his willpower. I've seen him do this over and over, him to overcome a lot of things that people thought that he might not overcome. Um, it's just who he is. When you talk about you know, what's inside of Derek, it's special. And that's what's made him great for so long. Girardi adds he's going to use Brendan Ryan, who was acquired Wednesday from Seattle for a player to be named later, and Eduardo Nunez at shortstop the rest of the year. Although Ryan is not going to be eligible for the playoffs because he was acquired after August 31st. Well, all this happened yesterday, just before the Yankees moved within a game of Tampa Bay for the last wild card spot in the American League. Let's take a look at what's going on in the standings in Major League Baseball. First of all, Boston is leading the Eastern Division with an 89 and 58 mark. Detroit all but has the Central wrapped up at 84 and 62. And Oakland is leading the West with an 84-61 and 61 mark. They are three games in front of Texas, who has the top wild card spot. And then comes Tampa Bay. But realistically, Tampa Bay and the Yankees are both tied for that last wild card spot. But because Tampa Bay has the edge in the season series between the two ball clubs, Tampa Bay has a one-game lead. Then comes Baltimore and Cleveland. Tied at 77 and 68, they're a game and a half out, and lo and behold, here's the Kansas City Royals, two games out at 77 and 69. Meanwhile, in the National League Wild Card race, here's a look at the division leaders. Atlanta has a seven-game magic number; they're at 87 and 58 in the East. St. Louis leads the Central at 85 and 60, and the Dodgers over Arizona in the West at 85 and 60. But the wild card race in the National League is really all but sewn up. Pittsburgh and Cincinnati have the two best wild card records. The team closest to them is Washington. They're 76 and 69, and they are six games behind the Reds for that last wild card slot. Let's move on to the college football on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Oklahoma State's football program is engaged in widespread academic misconduct. From the years 2000 to 2011, with players routinely having work completed for them by tutors and receiving passing grades for inferior work. That's according to the second installment in Sports Illustrated's five-part series alleging the university's football program committed a number of NCAA violations during its decade-long push from the bottom of the Big 12 to national relevancy. Thirteen former players told Sports Illustrated they had received impermissible academic assistance from the university during their tenures within the football program. These 14 players were, and another 16 former teammates, as also having schoolwork completed for them while with the school. One of the authors of the story is 
George Dorman. He explained the severity of the problems at Oklahoma State on the Dan Patrick Show earlier this week. They were the bonus system. Uh, there was an assistant coach who ran a bonus system, you know, who would say you get 250 for, you know, a tackle or a tackle behind the line or something like that or 500 for a sack. So that was one way. Then there were direct payments from boosters uh, and coaches and coaches to players. And then really the most creative way was a sort of a, a system of no-show jobs. You had kids being paid for, you know, fishing for catfish. You had uh, kids being paid for, you know, sitting around watching television, basically. Um, and, and that included, you know, boosters. It included a, a guy who was the Fellowship of Christian Athlete local rep. So it was a really pretty comprehensive sort of sham jobs system. Did coaches pay the players directly? Yeah, we have uh, – we accused two coaches – uh, Joe DeForest, who's now at West Virginia, and Larry Porter, who's now at Texas. Uh, you know, players told us on the record with their names, recorded interviews, that they got that they got money from those coaches. Well, if that is the case, the NCAA has got quite a job in front of them. With those allegations swirling around the university, there are several rumors as to what the penalties would be, if any, they could be, because. Some of the allegations are outside the supposed NCAA statute of limitation period of four years. Still, as explained by Pat Forty on the NBC Sports Dash show, these penalties could be severe. The, the biggest issue could be, A, getting uh, former players to tell the same story to the NCAA, and then secondly, how many occurred within the last four years, which is the NCAA statute of limitations. Most of the stuff in part one of this story is pretty dated, going back a, a decade or so. So a lot of that will probably get thrown out. But it certainly does paint a picture of how the program allegedly was run across a long period of time. So we'll see what the NCAA can verify that was in the story. So with that four-year statute of limitations, Les Miles walks away clean on this thing? Uh, that's a good question. I, you know, I... In terms of having any tangible penalty from what happened at, at uh, Oklahoma State, yeah, I would say so. But, uh, you know, some significant uh, questions about his reputation, his way of doing things, and whether that system carried over to his current job at LSU. I, that, that will probably all be fair game to be investigated. Yeah, and to that point, what's the impact here on college football overall? I mean, another scandal uh, hitting college football. Well, college football is, I think, in a little bit of a crisis mode because there have been this, this succession of scandals, and a lot of people kind of roll their eyes at some of this because they think players should be paid anyway. But the rules are set by the schools. They vote on them, and this is the rule book they want. And the coaches want people to play by the rules because of competitive advantage or disadvantage. If somebody is out there cheating as comprehensively as Oklahoma State is alleged to have, it's a big deal to who they're competing with, even if a lot of fans think, I'll just pay the players anyway. For now, the players can't be paid, and that's a big issue in college sports. I have a big problem with what Forty just said, because really – the coaches and the athletic directors don't agree with the NCAA's book of violations. Take this case in point. The SEC coaches, as well known that Steve Spurrier has been pushing this now for the last year or so, the coaches and athletic directors have voted unanimously to pay the players. So if that's the case out of one of the strongest conferences in the country right now, I disagree with what Forty has to say. Now, T. Boone Pickens, who's a massive Oklahoma State booster, isn't buying the Sports Illustrated report. 
In a statement, Pickens said he was disappointed by Sports Illustrated's sensational reporting and argued that the report totally ignored what's happening at the school today. In part one of the five-part investigation, former players claimed they were paid a few hundred dollars under the table for performance, as George Dorman just reported. Pickens isn't the only one criticizing this SI story. ESPN's Jason Whitlock also went on an epic rant yesterday where he called one of the authors of the story, Thayer Evans, a hack and a diehard Oklahoma fan. Well, let's get to what's going on on the football field. And then, of course, when we do that, that brings you to what many would say the game between Texas A&M and Alabama. They're calling it the game of the century. Well, it's not. It's not the game of the decade, not the game of the month, not even the game of the year, and it may not even be the game of the week. Clemson, Georgia was the game of the year so far, but for Alabama, redemption begins Saturday in College Station, Texas, because last year, Texas A&M beat Alabama 29-24, thus being the only blemish on the Tide's national championship run one year ago. Aggies coach Kevin Sumlin talks to Bruce Feldman about this rematch between the two powerhouse schools. The same way, it's our first SEC opponent, and particularly an SEC West opponent. And, and for us, that, that's all our focus is. You know, we, we want to try to get to Atlanta, just like everybody else on the West side, and have a chance to play for this thing. But in order to do that, you better handle people in your division. And, and we got a pretty tough division, so each one of these games really count. A lot's been made about Johnny. What is the biggest misconception that you think there is about him? The biggest misconception is that he doesn't care about uh, his actions or he doesn't care about his teammates. Um, I, I think that uh, if you go in our locker room, you ask any of our players or coaches uh, the way he interacts with our team and our team interacts with him, I couldn't be further from the truth. How did he make some mistakes? You bet he has. But uh, I think that uh, the guys around him uh, on a day-to-day basis understand uh, who he is, uh, that he's not acting, you know, as a, as a selfish individual guy when he's around his, his teammates. And and like you said, I said, you know, that that's probably the biggest misconception that uh, he's not a team guy and, and he doesn't care. What concerns you most about Alabama going into this weekend? Everything. <laughs> it's Alabama. You know, we, we've got we've got some guys who haven't played. You look at them defensively, you know they're going to be ready to go. Uh, they play great de- team defense. They've got good players. Uh, the biggest surprise has been, you know, special teams. You go to a place like Virginia Tech, who's known for their special teams play, and really that was the difference in the game. Big returns, setting up short fields, covering kicks. Uh, they've really improved there, and, and regardless of how things happened for them offensively last uh, two weeks ago, they've got real home run hitters on offense. All three wide receivers can go. Uh, an experienced quarterback and, and T.J. Yeldon, who's a, a wire-to-wire guy too, so um, I guess to answer your question, like I said, it all worries me. Is it a little challenge that you guys are home, maybe guarding against everyone being almost too high to play this game? No, I'd rather be at home. But don't give me. <laughs> I'd rather that happen than be on the road. You know, it's uh, uh, this league is is a tough enough league to play in. But uh, you know, I don't care what what anybody says. You'd much rather be at home than be on the road anywhere in this league. Well, this game isn't about revenge for Alabama or trying to knock Johnny Manziel off his pedestal. It's about playing the game the right way and not allowing the cracks and discipline that got to the tide last year in the ball game. 
and about staying in the realm of order and calm amid the frenzied environment in which Manziel seems to thrive in. Brian Jones and Randy Cross of CBS Sports preview this game and think the Aggies have a definite advantage over Alabama in this contest. Just a word or two about Johnny Manziel. This dude is cooler than pool water amidst all that chaos in which he, he uh, you know, it covets, if you will. But defensively, you're talking about a defense at Texas A&M. They've given over, up over 546 yards on the ground in two ball games. Rice, Sam, Houston State. Yes, help is on the way. Uh, you got a defensive lineman, a linebacker, and a DB, all starters who are coming back off of suspension this weekend. But how long is it going to take those guys to get up to speed? They haven't been in game action. And you can try to simulate practice or our game in practice all you want. There's no comparison to game speed. So we'll see how quickly these guys can get acclimated and see if they can help show up just, just porous rush defense. Well, talk about up to speed. And you're concentrating on that A&M defense. Alabama's offense, if you look at how they performed in the first game against Virginia Tech, they had 11 first downs. Not in the first half, not in the second half. I mean, oh, for the game, 11 first downs. They gave up four sacks. I mean, Nick Saban has got to be riding this offense and this offensive line, who we'll talk about later in the show. But I'm, I'm telling you, I think the offense, A.J. McCarron, it's going to be all on that running game. Because if they can't run the game against the ball against A&M, they're going to struggle throwing again. Well, and I'd love to hear what Nick Saban has to say about this game, but you're not going to. And we'll explain why in just a few minutes. But on the heels of this game has come another college football scandal, and this time it's not involving Johnny Football. Five Southeastern Conference football players, including former Alabama All-American tackle D.J. Fluker, allegedly received impermissible benefits prior to completing their collegiate careers. That's according to a Yahoo Sports report. Jim Pasquiel talks with Chris Lowe about this situation. Lowe is ESPN's SEC college football writer. They talk about the alleged violations and just what could happen. Several former players, and one current player, Bo Couch of Tennessee in the SEC, uh, took extra benefits from a runner, uh, Luther Davis, a former player at Alabama, uh, and the problem with this is these guys are all gone except for Mo Couch, who's a current player. The problem is that you can't take anything while you're in school and still be eligible. So I think the the, the key here for the schools now is what did they know? Were they negligent mm-hmm. in any way? Were there things they should have known and sort of stuck their head in the sand? I think those are the things now as you look at it from Alabama, Tennessee, and Mississippi State's perspective. I think that's the key question. Chris, with regards to the impact on these schools, what do you suppose the ramifications are going to be for these SEC programs? Well, I think first for Tennessee, Mo Couch, I think he's probably is done. I would say he will not play anymore this year for Tennessee. don't see any way he's on the trip this weekend to Oregon. He's the only current player that was named. Uh, the rest of them, they'll all have to do reviews, see what's fact, what's fiction, uh, what money, did money exchange hands, were these extra benefits. Sounds like there's a pretty good paper trail here. And, again, I think it gets back to were these schools diligent? Did they do their due diligence? Uh, Did they educate these kids well enough about aging? I think in Alabama's case, I think they've been warned. The players have been warned uh, about Luther Davis, not having anything to do with him. So it'll be interesting to see how all this plays out. Chris, of course, we know about this 
Sports Illustrated story, a series on Oklahoma State and improper benefits to players during a period of time when Les Miles was there, at least beginning that time. Uh, so my question to you is how common do issues like these regarding what's going on with these SEC schools happen nationwide? Well, it, it, and that's a good question. I think it's very common, probably more so than fans would ever know, that there are runners on every campus. There are guys who are liaisons and agents firms trying to get in with these players, trying to form connections, and yes, money changes hands, kids take things all the time, and a lot of times what happens is money, these players will take money maybe from a runner or for agents, not necessarily sign with them, sign with other agents, and that sometimes causes problems, and then maybe that's what's happened in this case, but it's very commonplace, and I know that a lot the NCAA may not want to admit that, coaches don't want to admit it, but it is very, very common across college football. Of course, Alabama has been made aware of this report, and Athletic Director Bill Battle said in a statement Wednesday that the school was investigating the allegations. Alabama coach Nick Saban said Wednesday he supports the school's compliance department and then refused to answer any questions about the report at his weekly press conference, instead wanting to talk about the upcoming Texas A&M game on Saturday. Well, the media had other ideas, which led to Saban walking out and not answering any questions about the ball game. Here's what happened. We've done a lot of investigating about a lot of things. Every time somebody brings something up about our program, we investigate it. Uh, we do the best we can. Uh, there's nobody in this organization that wants to do anything that's not above board, and we don't want our players to do it either. That's not what the program's built on, and that's not what we're going to do. You know, I've already answered it three times. So who else wants it? Can we get in the line and everybody ask the question? If you want to talk about the Texas A&M game, I'll be glad to talk about it. That's what I'm here to do. I'm here to coach our players, talk about our team. Appreciate your interest in the game. For months and I mean months, almost since the end of the national championship game against Notre Dame. All the media has wanted to talk about was the rematch between Texas A&M and Alabama. And now we are three days from that game actually taking place. All the ballyhooing going on about this game, and suddenly the media has no questions whatsoever on the game. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Their main point of emphasis were the allegations made in a Yahoo Sports report. Even after Nick Saban addressed them at the beginning of the press conference and said he had no further questions. And all I've heard throughout this entire day is that the media was obligated to ask him questions about it. No, they weren't. They were obligated to deal with the situation at hand. And why were they there? To deal with the Texas A&M ball game that Alabama will be playing on Saturday. Nick Saban already did his job by addressing the allegations made by Yahoo Sports, but yet the media couldn't let it go, and thus Nick Saban has nothing to say about Texas A&M. That may be good, that may be bad. We'll find out on Saturday. Yet, that Yahoo Sports report is showing benefits coming from multiple sources based upon financial record and text messages belonging to former Alabama defensive end Luther Davis, who said 
to, was to have said to be working as a runner for the agents involved. Yahoo Sports did authenticate transactions between Fluker and Davis, including money transfers, hotel stays, flights, furniture, and other expenses. And we're talking about somewhere in the area of around $45,000. Well, that Texas A&M-Alabama game will be on CBS. That's coming up Saturday at 3.30. Well, let's stay in the state of Texas where Mac Brown is in trouble, and he knows it. After Saturday's 40-21 to loss to BYU, in which Texas gave up an astounding 550 yards rushing, Brown, who had never before fired an assistant in midseason, seethed over the loss overnight and fired defensive coordinator Manny Diaz on Sunday. Brown turned over the defense to Greg Robinson, who spent one season as the defensive coordinator in 2004 before leaving to become head coach at Syracuse. Robinson also spent 14 years in the NFL and coached Michigan's defense the last two years. Coming into the season, Brown appeared to be on a short leash as head coach of the Texas Longhorns, yet on Tuesday, the university athletic director gave Brown a vote of confidence, which normally is the kiss of death. Nonetheless, is Brown really in trouble? Well, Eddie George of Fox Sports says probably. When you see a coach uh, getting fired, really the first week uh, of the season, the first two weeks, assistant coach, that's not a good thing for the head coach. That's the, a sign of things to come and things don't change quickly. Um, I, I don't foresee Texas making a decision uh, immediately this year, but it's going to happen at the end of the year if things don't change. And that, that showing that Texas had against BYU was just simply more of the same thing that's been going on. Usually when you have a successful program, the one thing you have to stand guard for is complacency. Complacency will come to collect in this situation, and that's what we've seen. And it's not his fault totally. I think overall he's been there for a very long time. Uh, recruiting hasn't been quite the same. Uh, they've, they've lost that edge, that championship edge. They've gotten really complacent off the fact they've had success with Vince Young and Colt McCoy and so forth and won national championships that a lot of little things have gone by the wayside and the culture of the locker room has lost its edge. And that's what I see on the field. There's just too much talent on that roster for them to have a show in the way that they've had really the last three years uh, at that program. So if things don't change in a hurry, if they don't show uh, toughness on the field and ha come up with a big win this week and the, in the weeks to come, especially against their rival, Oklahoma, it could be the end for Mac Brown. But I don't see that happening until the end of the season that program has too much respect for Mac Brown to dismiss him in the middle of the year. Here's a number to remember, though. Texas is 24-17 and 17 since losing to Alabama in the national championship game after the 2009 season. But Brown has talked openly before this season about high expectations that this year's team could return the program to national prominence still after the loss to BYU that caused Texas to fall from number 15 out of the top 25. And Texas will host number 25, Mississippi, who's 2-0 on Saturday. That leads us into this week's Associated Press Top 25 rankings. Let's take a look at the top 10, where Alabama is 1-0, and they garnered 57 first-place votes. The other th three first-place votes went to number 2, Oregon, 
number three, Clemson, and number four, Ohio State. Ohio State's the only team to continue to win and drop two places in two consecutive weeks. Stanford is number five. They won their season opener last Saturday. Then comes Texas A&M. They're 2-0 heading into the Alabama conflict this Saturday. Louisville is number seven. LSU number eight. Georgia number nine. And Florida State rounds out the top ten. They are 1-0. and Another team to drop out of the top 25 this week, the USC Trojans. And the dominoes continue to fall for Trojans head coach Lane Kiffin. His tenure is now in its fourth season, and mediocre results on the field have translated into a troubling trend on the recruiting trail. And the doubters are coming out in droves after Washington State's win last Saturday over the Trojans in Los Angeles. Fox Sports' Petros Papadakis talks about the tenuous circumstances at USC for head coach Lane Kiffin. I think there's two points of pressure in this situation. There's the fans booing, and that's the fans. I mean, that's the everyday fan, some of them season ticket holders, people that love USC, wear the sweatshirt, wear the hat. And then there's the rich boosters that give to the program. So they have their own way of putting pressure on an AD, in this case, Pat Hayden. And Hayden's been hearing about Lane Kiffin from those people, or at least some of them, I would imagine, for at least the better part of a year. Now, I can say this. I played at USC. I'm the captain of the worst football team in USC history. We lost five straight after being ranked number eight in the country. And we were never, my football team, treated that way in the Coliseum. I've never heard anything like that. I've been talking to historians, people around USC. That was a complete rejection of the product they were seeing on the football field. So USC, we're already still in September and hearing rumors about Lane Kiffin and what's going to happen, and we're already naming people who are going to maybe come in. So it is a wild time right now for USC, and it was obvious on offense. They just didn't believe in anything they were doing on the field. An unbelievably shocking performance. Well, even recruits are causing a problem for Kiffin right now. Days after learning four-star defensive tackle Tayshawn Smallwood of Fresno, California, had decommitted from his verbal pact with the Trojans, Another high-profile California recruit is lobbing insults at the current USC regime. Demario Richard out of Palmdale, California, listed as the nation's 24th best running back on the 247 sports composite rankings, took to Twitter for a brief tirade aimed at Kiffin. The initial tweet, which has since been deleted, was captured by collegespun.com, and it said, maybe if USC gets rid of Kiffin, they will have a shot at me. Well, I remember when USC, Alabama, Ohio State, Michigan were all going after the same athletes, not the 24th best running back in the country. So that tells you how far USC has fallen. But it also tells you just how cocky a Demario Richard is being the 24th best running back in the country. And he seems to think that if USC fires their head coach, they have a shot at him. I think USC could probably do better. Well, Jadavian Clowney expressed frustration over his role in South Carolina's struggling defense following Saturday's loss to Georgia, hinting that the Gamecocks coaches should find more creative ways to use him. The reigning SEC Defensive Player of the Year and a consensus favorite for the number one overall pick in next year's NFL draft, 
Connie recorded three tackles and one sack in Saturday's 41-30 loss at Georgia. It was the second consecutive lackluster performance for Clowney, who did not record a sack in South Carolina's season-opening victory over North Carolina. Clowney, who had a school-record 13 sacks last season, said it will be difficult to make an impact if opposing offenses continue to run plays away from him. Fox Sports' Petros Papadakis again talks about Clowney's frustration and just what should happen. Well, they can move him to strength or do something like that, but look, North Carolina and Georgia both did a great job game planning around chipping him, doing a good job of double teaming him, moving the protection, different stuff like that, and that's all very technical football stuff. But look, Clowney is a right defensive end. He's really comfortable lining up on that side. You know where he's going to be. That's just football. And if he was LeVar Arrington or Manti Teo or a middle linebacker where defensive coordinators could scheme to occupy guards and centers to keep people from coming out to them so you let those guys run free and make plays, okay, maybe you could do that. But he is not a middle linebacker. He's a defensive end. And I'm not really comfortable with this kind of narrative going on this early in the season for South Carolina. It's kind of the same thing with USC. I mean, it's this early, and we're talking about the output of Jadavion Clowney. I mean, I want to hear a receiver complaining about not getting balls. Not a defensive player. Does he expect to go out there and make five sacks a game? Overhyped is starting to echo in my ear. Now, look, the guy's a great player, and there's nobody like him in college football. But if you want to make plays, Jadavion Clowney, you don't like your output, go make plays. Run the football field. Utah's got a guy named Trevor Riley. His motor never stops. He makes all kinds of plays out there. You can do that too, Clowney. Complaining about your output as a defensive player, I mean, that's pretty amazing. And hopefully, Steve Spear can get a handle on it. And Clowney played 78% of South Carolina's defensive snaps against Georgia, including all 17 in the first quarter. He recorded a sack, but the Gamecocks gave up three times as many yards with Clowney on the field. Let's take a look at what's going on in the top 25 college football schedule for this Saturday. It looks like there's a good chance Ohio State quarterback Braxton Miller will play against California on Saturday. At least that's what Urban Meyer is thinking. Meyer said he had seen substantial improvement in Miller's movement and was fairly optimistic that the junior would play. He got through seven snaps against San Diego State last Saturday before suffering a sprain to his left MCL. He was examined in the locker room, fitted with a knee brace before returning to the sideline, where Ohio State trainers said he would be available to play, but Meyer determined that the Buckeyes didn't need him after a 42-7 route over the Aztecs. Expect Ohio State to use the running game this Saturday to control the tempo of the game against Cal and keep Cal's high-flying offense off the field. Adam Rittenberg from ESPN Report. Regardless of quarterback Braxton Miller's health, it'll be imperative for Ohio State to control the line of scrimmage with its run game against Cal's high-powered, fast-paced offense on Saturday afternoon. Buckeyes coach Urban Meyer saying tempo, a huge part of this game. You only get 70 players to take on the road, so you want to conserve your defense against the Cal offense that can run a ton of plays and really tire out its opponent. Best way for Ohio State to do that is that massive offensive line, good running backs with Jordan Hall, Rod Smith, and others, and really control the clock, control the tempo, and get out of Berkeley with a win. If Miller can't get all the way back and play, the Buckeyes will turn the game over to Kenny Guyton again, who threw for 152 yards and rushed for 83 while totaling three touchdowns against the Aztecs after Miller was hurt 
on Saturday. That game is at 7 o'clock on Saturday night. That will be on Fox Sports Ohio State at Cal. It's the first road trip for the Buckeyes this season. Let's take a look at what else is going on tonight in college football. TCU, number 24 in the country, plays at Texas Tech. That game's at 7.30 on ESPN. Also, as we said, number two, Oregon, will be playing Tennessee. Stanford is at Army. That's a noon start. The number five, Cardinal, taking on Army. Number seven, Louisville, will be at Kentucky in that interstate battle. That's at noon. LSU is playing Kent State. That is Saturday night. LSU, number eight in the country. Number 10, Florida State entertains Nevada. Number 11, Michigan. Well, they are going to send to the slaughter Akron at noon at the big house. Number 12, Oklahoma State entertains Lamar on Saturday evening. Number 13, South Carolina will host Vanderbilt. That's at 7 o'clock on Saturday night. Number 14, Oklahoma entertains Tulsa. That's at noon. Northwestern plays Western Michigan. Northwestern, number 17 in the country. Number 19, Washington plays Patsy, Illinois at Chicago at 6 o'clock on Saturday night. Also, number 25, Mississippi, as I said, is at Texas. That's at 8 o'clock. But here's three games I want to talk about. Number 21, Notre Dame, is at Purdue. That game is the nationally televised game on ABC Saturday night at 8 p.m. Are you telling me that there's not a better game than Purdue, Notre Dame on Saturday night? Well, let me throw these two up at you. Number 16, UCLA, averaging 50 points a game, is playing at number 23, Nebraska. Why is that game being played at noon and not on Saturday night? Why is Notre Dame being put on Saturday night? And here's another one. Number 20, Wisconsin, is playing at Arizona State. That should be a barn burner of a game, too. But that game is not on national TV. It's on at 10.30 on Saturday night. Why isn't that the Saturday night game also? Just a question to ponder as to why Notre Dame suddenly becomes a nationally televised ball club. We're going to be back with more on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show, and we're going to do that right after this timeout. In baseball news, Cincinnati called up their number one draft choice from this year's amateur draft. 18-year-old Dylan Michael spent less than a month in the team's minor league system, where he hit a combined 406 with 12 home runs and 27 RBI. It's expected that Michael will start in center field tonight in Cincinnati's game against New York. Last at bat, a novel by Mark Donahue, available at Joseph A. Beth, Barnes & Noble, and Books and & Company. You can also pick up Mark Donahue's book, Last to Bet, simply by going to the right side of our homepage here at UltimateSportsTalk.com and ordering your autographed copy today. Thanks for joining us on the Ultimate Sports Talk show tonight at UltimateSportsTalk.com. I am Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along. Let's move into the NFL and see what's happening this weekend. Well, let's start with some off-the-field activities. When Lions defensive tackle Indomitian Sue went low on Vikings center John Sullivan on Sunday during game number one during an interception return, it was detestable enough to cause the NFL to slap him with a $100,000 fine. Now, players have been complaining since the end of last season 
They don't know what is legal and an illegal hit on the field. Yet, most agree Sue's hit in this situation on Sullivan was unnecessary and uncalled for. Even Fox Sports analyst and former head football coach for the Baltimore Ravens, Brian Billick, seems to think that there was a problem with this hit. I think clearly the Sioux play was illegal. I think the fact that Ndamukong Sioux brings in some history of the last recent years has brought it, uh, a little more attention to it. I think we have to be very careful when we're talking about plays that happen within the body of a play, a live action, versus some of the knucklehead things we saw that happened pre- or post-snap uh, during the course of the games last Sunday. Um, anything that happens during the course of the game, within the course of a play, Things are happening fast, and I don't think what Dominican Sue did was vicious. I don't think it was purposeful. I think he just got caught up in the body of the play. Had he placed his head just a little bit differently with a little bit different angle, it would have been legal. So I don't think it was anything nasty or illegal. He is very, very much aware, having visited with him the day before in Detroit, about the fact that he's going to carry this around. There's going to be an extra mantle of uh, of circumspection from officials looking at him going, okay, this isn't Dominican Sue. Do I call it one way or the other? The officials will never say that they ever look at it based on the individual. They're just looking at the act. But we all know better than that that you're going to carry your history with you. Dominican Sue's fine with that. He says, I'm going to have to conduct myself in a way going forward that they stop looking at, at me in that way. Certainly that play didn't help him. Sue and his representatives believe the punishment is too excessive and he's appealing that fine, which happens to be the largest ever levied to a player for an on-field action that also did not involve a suspension. Well, offensive. Not on the field, but now off of it. The NFL wants to be an offensive league. Defense wins championships, as the old saying says, but offense is exciting. Unless it comes to the name of your team. Then Roger Goodell is convinced the word offensive should be offensive. Again, the complaints from a minuscule amount of American Indian minorities are clamoring for the name of the Washington Redskins to be changed. And up until yesterday, the closest that Goodell had come to advocating for a change was conceding that reasonable people may view it differently, suggesting that his stance on the moniker may be evolving Goodell stated he may actually be willing to start listening to some of these reasonable people. Well, that's what he said during an interview with LeVar Arrington and Chad Dukes on 106.7 The Fan in Washington on Wednesday. The team name is part of their history and tradition, and that's something that's important to the Redskins fans. Um, and, you know, I think what we have to do, though, is we have to – we have to listen. If one person is offended, we have to listen. And ultimately, it is Dan's decision, but it's it's something that um, I want all of us to go out and make sure we're listening to our fans, listening to people who have a different view, and making sure that we continue to do what's right to make sure that team represents the strong tradition and history that it has for so many years. Well, you know, we're always sensitive to to what impacts on the, the league in general, that includes our 32 teams and making sure that we're doing what's right here. And that's why I think, again, we have to do everything that's necessary to make sure that we're representing the franchise uh, in a positive way and that rich history and tradition. And if if 
we are offending one person, we need to be listening and making sure that we're doing the right things to try to address that. Well, first of all, the NFL has never been concerned about a team's rich tradition. Take, for example, the Oakland Raiders when they moved to Los Angeles. They didn't care. Take, for example, the Los Angeles Raiders when they moved back to Oakland. They didn't care. Take, for example, when the Indianapolis Colts moved from Baltimore to Indiana. They didn't care. And take, for example, when the Cleveland Browns were moved from Cleveland to Baltimore. They didn't care. Washington team owner Daniel Snyder has previously previously insisted that he will never agree to a name change. Goodell wants to listen to people if they are offended. Well, if he wants to do that, start right here on this show. Listen to me. I'm offended by taking away the hitting, taking away that out of the game. The tackle eligible play being announced to the crowd. I'm offended by that. I want it to go back to where the tackle eligible play was actually a surprise. I'm offended by the referee getting a microphone. I think that's the worst thing the NFL ever did. I'm offended by the bounty gate suspensions. I'm offended by the defense getting hamstrung by rules and the Super Bowl being played in a cold weather stadium this year in New York City. Listen and gargle on those complaints. Mr. Commissioner, let's see just how much you want to listen to your constituents. Well, it appears Mark Sanchez's career as a New York Jet effectively ended in a meaningless preseason game as he got pounded behind the backup offensive line in a game that some say he shouldn't have been in and he suffered a serious shoulder injury. Well, it was reported today that Sanchez will likely have surgery for a torn labrum in that throwing shoulder. It's being reported by ESPN today. That's the most likely option after Dr. James Andrews confirmed the injury. This would end his season, and very likely he will not be back to the Jets next year. He could also choose to avoid surgery and rehab the injury instead, according to ESPN, but that would still land him on the injured reserve list even if he picks that option. And there's no reason really for the Jets to keep Sanchez around in 2014. His salary isn't guaranteed anymore, and it's hefty. He's due a $2 million roster bonus and a $9 million salary if they keep him, and that is probably not going to happen. Well, week two of the NFL football season begins tonight, just four days after opening their season against the Buffalo Bills with a 23-21 win. The New England Patriots welcome the New York Jets for their home opener at Gillette Stadium tonight in a nationally televised game on the NFL Network that's going to kick off uh, probably about 50 minutes from right now. The team enters the game with concerns over injuries at key positions on offense, including, get this list, wide receiver Danny Amendola is out with a groin. He led the team in receiving last week. Aaron Dobson is out with a hamstring injury as well as tight end Zach Sudfeld. He's out with a hamstring. Amendola is listed as doubtful after aggravating that injury. Dobson and Sudfeld are listed as questionable. The team will also have to fill a gaping hole left by Shane Vereen, who operated as the team's third down running back and filled in for starter Stefan Ridley when he was benched for fumbling. Now, Vereen will miss the next eight weeks with a broken bone in his left wrist. Former Jets running back Leon Washington could replace some of Vereen's snaps, but he's listed as questionable in the game with a thigh injury. The Jets are coming off 
a season opening 18-17 win over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Kicker Nick Folk nailed a game-winning 48-yard field goal with two seconds remaining to lift his team, while rookie quarterback Geno Smith went 24 of 38 for 256 yards. He had one touchdown, one interception, and 47 yards rushing in his debut. Pete Prisco of CBS Sports previews tonight's matchup on the NFL Network. When you play Bill Belichick, and I, you know, EJ, EJ Manuel did some good things, but when you play Bill Belichick and you're a young quarterback, he's going to throw a bunch of different things at you. That's just what he does. He's had great success against rookie quarterbacks. And, and EJ Manuel moved around and made some throws last week, but I think this is going to be a different task for Geno Smith on the road. EJ Manuel is at home, on the road, tougher to start. It's going to be uh, every look imaginable we've thrown his way. It's going to be tough for him to get the ball moving. They didn't sack the quarterback last week. Now, EJ Manuel moves around. It's tough to get him on the ground, but I predicted big things for Chandler Jones this week. Um, I think he's going to get after him. It's a good matchup against the Brickershaw Ferguson, but I do think he's going to get Geno Smith on the ground maybe twice, maybe you know once for sure. Uh, they have to get pressure on him, and I think they do. Now, obviously, the Jets performed well against the run last week. What do you think this will mean for like Stephen Ridley and company? Well, with Vereen probably da- or down, he's got a bro- uh, broken bone. Uh, he's out, but so I think it's going to go back to Ridley. You know, the thing with Ridley is he's got to hold the football. This yeah. is a guy that's had fumble problems. He's got to be able to hold the football. So can they run on the Jets? That's going to be tough to do. The Jets' young defensive linemen are good. Sheldon Richardson, the rookie, played very well last week. We know Wilkerson's a good football player. Uh, so it's going to be tough to run on him. I think this is Tom Brady's game. But, but if they can get the lead, then they can run with Ridley. I think that's the idea. And I love to talk about the Jets' defensive backfield from Marty Milliner. Yeah, the Bucks threw at Milner early last week, and, and he gave up a couple plays, but then he kind of settled down and played pretty good football. And Cromartie is a great man-to-man cover guy. That's the matchup I want to see. I want to see yeah. uh, the young receivers outside matched up in man coverage against those guys. If they can get plays down the field and beat them, then I think Tom Brady is going to get back to being the Tom Brady of old. If those two guys can shut down those outside receivers, then the Patriots might have some problem moving the football. I think it's a huge, uh, big victory for the New England Patriots. I just think they're too strong uh, for the Jets. I think the Jets will be happy that they got what they got last week against uh, Tampa Bay. But this is a different animal. This is the New England Patriots on the road. It's going to be a tough game. I like the I like the Patriots big. The Patriots swept their season series with the Jets in 2012 for the second straight year, and they are 19 and nine against the Jets since Bill Belichick took the helm of the team. New England leads the all-time series, 55 wins against 52 losses and one tie, and they are 28-5 and at Gillette Stadium against divisional opponents. Belichick is also 6-2 and when coaching on Thursday nights, including a 49-19 win over the Jets on Thanksgiving last year. Remember that game, the famous butt-fumble game by Mark Sanchez? Well, my prediction for tonight as Mr. T said in Rocky Three, pain. I'm picking the New England Patriots to win this ball game by two touchdowns. Let's take a look at the rest of the NFL schedule for this Sunday. And let's start in Baltimore, where the Ravens will be coming off of their loss last Thursday night to Peyton Manning and the Denver Broncos after Manning had a career night of seven touchdown passes. And they're going to be entertaining their old team, the Cleveland Browns. The Browns are coming in after a loss to the Miami Dolphins at home. Their ninth straight opening game loss 
since returning to the league in 1999. Do the Browns have a shot in this game? Nope. Not the way they played last week. Now, Barkevius Mingo, the number one pick for the Browns, number five pick in the draft last year. He'll make his debut as a Browns outside linebacker in this ball game. He had to leave the second exhibition game with a bruised lung, and the doctors just cleared him earlier this week to play. He's expected to play in the ball game. It's at 1 o'clock from M&T Bank Stadium. That game will be televised on CBS. Take the Ravens to win this ball game as they get their rings and raise their Super Bowl flag. Let's look at the rest of the 1 o'clock games on Sunday. St. Louis is playing at Atlanta. The Falcons are coming off a defeat to the New Orleans Saints. I think the Falcons will get back on track in the Georgia Dome. Take the Falcons to win this ballgame. San Diego at Philadelphia. Boy, it was quite a run fest between the Eagles and the Washington Redskins on Monday night. But still, Chip Kelly thought the Eagles' offense was rather slow. I'm going to take Philadelphia to win that game on Monday or a Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock on CBS from Lincoln Financial Field, and the Chargers will start 0-2. Dallas is at Kansas City. Andy Reid against the Dallas Cowboys. Used to be a great matchup there between Philadelphia and Dallas when Reid was the coach of the Eagles. Well, now he's in Kansas City. I'm still taking Dallas to win that game at 1 o'clock on Fox from Arrowhead Stadium. Miami 1-0 goes to Indianapolis. The Colts are 1-0. The Colts will be 2-0. Miami will be 1-1. The Colts will win the 1 o'clock game on CBS from Lucas Oil Stadium. They'll be 2-0. Tennessee is at Houston. Houston came from behind to beat San Diego in an improbable game on Monday night, the late night game. Houston will be 2-0 as they go home for the first time to Reliance Stadium at 1 o'clock on CBS. Take the Texans over Tennessee. Washington is at Green Bay. I'm picking up the Packers to win that game at 1 o'clock on Fox. Carolina goes to Buffalo. I think after a very disappointing loss to the Patriots, Buffalo will win this game. They'll be 1-1. One one. That's at 1 o'clock on Fox from Ralph Wilson Stadium. Minnesota is at Chicago. And boy, what an impressive debut for Mark Tressman, the new head coach of the Chicago Bears. I'm going to take the Bears to beat Minnesota in that ball game at Soldier Field, 1 o'clock on Fox. Here's a look at the 4 o'clock games on Sunday afternoon. It's New Orleans at Tampa Bay. The Saints got off on the great foot against Atlanta. I think they're going to continue it and win on the road as they beat Tampa Bay on Fox at 4.05. Detroit will be at Arizona. I see the Lions coming up with a big road win over the Cardinals at 4.05 on Fox. At 4.25 on CBS, it will be Jacksonville at Oakland, and I'm taking Terrell Pryor and the Oakland Raiders to win that ball game at 425. And finally, the last afternoon game on Week 2 is on CBS. That's at 425 at MetLife Stadium. It's the Battle of the Mannings. Peyton against Eli. It will be Denver beating the New York Giants and not making Tom Coughlin very happy. Denver to win that ball game and go 2-0 at 425 on CBS. The Sunday night ball game is San Francisco at Seattle. That's at 8.30 on NBC, and I'm going to take Seattle to win that ball game. It is very tough to win a road game in Seattle, especially this early in the year. I think San Francisco's got the better team, but I'm going to take Seattle to win the ball game from CenturyLink Field. That's at 8.30 on NBC Sunday night. And the Monday night game 
It's Pittsburgh at Cincinnati. All of the AFC North teams lost last Sunday. Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Baltimore, and Cleveland. Well, something's got to give this weekend with Cleveland and Baltimore. I've already picked the Ravens to win that ball game, And I'm going to pick Cincinnati to win this one over Pittsburgh at Paul Brown Stadium in Cincinnati. That game kicks off Monday night at 840 on ESPN. Take the Bengals to beat Pittsburgh. And that's a look at the NFL schedule for this upcoming weekend. Let's move away from football and move into boxing, where there's a big fight coming up this weekend. For more than two months, Floyd Mayweather Jr. and Saul Canelo Alvarez have discussed, debated, and celebrated their big fight coming up Saturday night in so many ways and in so many locales, it's easy to lose sight of what exactly they're fighting for. The two boxers conducted a 10-city press tour in June, and they've talked so long and so extensively that eventually the dialogue ceased being about the appeal of the bout. Mayweather has been installed as a heavy favorite against the younger and less experienced Alvarez, and the champ expects this to be a very hard-fought fight, despite what the media or the odds makers in Las Vegas Thanks. We wake up feeling different every day. And um, do I feel I'm the best in the sport? Absolutely. Do I feel I'm going to win September 14th? Absolutely. But am I fighting a guy that, that's just a pushover? I don't think so. He's, he's young, he's strong, um, he got good positive skills, so we'll just see how the fight play out. And yesterday at his camp, Floyd, I mean, it seemed pretty clear from his trainers and him that he's pursuing the knockout. Is, is, when you hear that, do you get excited and you say that's exactly what I want to hear? Well, you know, I just look at, you know, all you got to do is look at some of the opponents that he's faced. A lot of guys went the distance with him. And we're not, we're not talking about guys that's on the A list or B list. We're talking about D, and, D, D fighters and C fighters. You know, they were able to go to the eighth round and ninth round. He was getting hit with numerous shots. So, you know, as far as with me, you know, I use certain angles. Uh, I got a lot of experience in big fights. So uh, it's going to be a little bit different for him when it's at the club. How much do you think the experience thing is going to matter? I mean, you can see in the last fight, you know, uh, with, the, with the Robert Guerrero fight. He thought it was just going to be easy because I think that a lot of times people look at, you know, fighters look at me on the outside and say, it can't really be that difficult. But once you get inside that that ring or you get into, I call it the square circle. Once you get inside that square circle, it, it's totally different. Mayweather is 44-0. and 0. And Alvarez is 42-0-1. And, and this battle on Saturday is a catchweight at 152 pounds in a junior middleweight unification bout at the MGM Grand. Alvarez, through a translator, says that he is ready for a hard fight on Saturday night. It's a difficult fight. It's going to be a very tough, difficult fight. I know that, and we've been working towards that. Uh, but I have advantages. I have a lot of advantages. But... I've been concentrating on the things that are going to be difficult. We've been working on that. Right around this time is when I feel I can't wait to get up in the ring. So I'm feeling very good about myself right now, and I've been training hard, and I'm ready to go. What, what, do, you, what do you think people are going to find out about you, you know, maybe discovering you for the first time? What do you think, once they see this fight, what are they going to discover about you? No, I mean, I've always said that I've never fought at my potential at 100%. Uh, my rivals haven't been able to bring that out of me, but I think Floyd's going to bring it out of me, and I'm going to fight to my full potential, and they'll see that on, on Saturday night. Floyd's uh, whipped about 25 Latin fighters, you know, since he's been in the game. 
Is stopping that streak important to you? No, claro que sí. No, of course, that's very important to me. It's very important. I'm not coming to make a good fight. I'm coming to win. So that's very, very important to me. The biggest drama might not unfold until after the fight and the hours and days that follow when the profits are determined because this fight is really mostly about money. This event has already been sold out for months, producing the greatest live gate total in boxing history at 19.1 million, besting the previous record of 18.4 million before that. I would like to see Alvarez win this fight. I don't think there's any way, especially in Vegas, they will let Mayweather lose it. I'm going to take Mayweather in a 12-round decision in that fight. And that's going to do it for tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk show. Thanks for joining us tonight. Don't forget to come back on Monday night here at UltimateSportsTalk.com when Mark Donahue and I talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds and the last two weeks of the Major League Baseball season on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. That's at 9 o'clock Monday night here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. That's going to do it for tonight. I'm going to kick back and watch New England and the New York Jets on Thursday night football. Hope you're going to join me in doing that. We'll talk to you again next Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer, but most of all, our thanks to you for listening. I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next Thursday night, have a good weekend, everyone. Good night.